Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First, earnings season continues to fuel recovery hopes with 25% of S&P 500 companies reporting last week, and over 80% of them have beat expectations. How does that compare to a usual earnings season? Second, if earnings season is going so well, why was the market flat last week? Number three, after last week's deep dive on the housing market, what did the data for March released last week say about the current market? And a bonus headline for you. What's up with Bitcoin? The leading cryptocurrency is down 20% from its prior week high. What's driving it? And after that, I'm going to do a deep dive on the capital gains tax, given it caused such a fuss in last week's financial markets. What is President Biden actually proposing? Why is he proposing it? And how does it fit with tax policy historically and globally? Now let's dig into the three financial headlines of the week. Up first, the latest from Q1 earnings season. Last week, earnings season continued. According to FactSet, so far with 25% of companies in the S&P 500 having reported, 84% have reported a positive earnings surprise, meaning that the actual Q1 2021 earnings beat analyst or investor estimates. Remember, the stock market trades on investor expectations, so when companies report earnings better than expected, the stock market trades higher. So how do these results compare to a typical quarterly earnings season? Most companies give guidance to set themselves up to succeed. On average, over the last five years, companies have beat earnings 74% of the time. The 84% for the current quarter is high, and if it holds through for the rest of earnings season, it will be tied for the highest surprise percentage since FactSet began tracking this data back in 2008. It's also tracking to be the largest earnings surprise season ever, with companies beating earnings by nearly 24% on average, compared to a five-year average of 7%. Solid performance for Q1 2021 is supporting the stock market's hopes for economic recovery. The average earnings growth rate for Q1 for the S&P 500 so far is over 30% versus Q1 a year ago driven by rising profit margins and, of course, easy comparisons against last year when the lockdown began. If this trend continues, Q1 will have the highest earnings growth rate reported in over a decade. So if you're looking for an explanation as to why stocks are where they are, why they've rallied so much this year, Q1 2021 earnings season is delivering the data to support it. But earnings season isn't over yet and this week it reaches its peak. Nearly 900 companies are scheduled to report this week, including more than one-third of the S&P 500. Some of the big names to watch. On Monday, Tesla. Tuesday, Alphabet, the parent company of Google reports, along with Microsoft, 3M, and Starbucks. 
On Wednesday, look for Apple, Boeing, eBay, Facebook, Grubhub, Shopify, and Yum! Brands. Thursday, we get McDonald's, Amazon, MasterCard, and Twitter. And Friday, look for Clorox, Chevron, Exxon, and Barclays Bank. And that's just a handful of the names of the 900 reporting. Next up, if earnings season is going so well, why was the market flat last week? The overall market sentiment throughout 2021 continues to be driven by two key themes, but last week highlighted a third leg of the stool. First, stock market rallying on hopes of recovery. Second, being tempered by rising interest rates fueled by inflation concerns. And now the third, threatened by unfavorable changes to both corporate and capital gains taxes. The S&P 500 closed essentially flat for the week, down 0.1% versus the week prior and the first down week in a month. The market was mixed for most of the week as interest rates also remain relatively flat ahead of this coming week's FOMC meeting. This was all before a sharp sell-off on Thursday, following a leak of of President Biden's plans to fund the second part of his plans, the American Family Plan, in part through doubling capital gains taxes on the wealthy. The market sold off 0.9% on Thursday, but recovered most of the losses on Friday to finish the week down just 0.1%, in spite of the extremely strong earnings reports. Last week, the pause in rising interest rates and continued solid Q1 earnings reports, which were both positive for the stock market, were offset by public policy concerns around President Biden's plans to double the capital gains taxes for those earning more than a million dollars a year. He is expected to formally present the plan to Congress on Wednesday. Even more companies are scheduled to report earnings this week, and the Fed is also scheduled for an FOMC meeting. So there's lots of news that could potentially impact the market this week. After a few weeks in April of the tech and growth stocks rallying, last week we saw a bit of return to the earlier trends of this year, with tech and growth stocks in a holding pattern as value in small cap stocks outperformed again. This could be just a pause ahead of major tech earnings releases coming this week, as well as disappointing outlook and headwinds for companies like Netflix, which reported last week. While Netflix had good results for Q1, these big tech companies that benefited significantly during the lockdown last year are some of the few to face more difficult growth comparisons as we come into 2021, leaving investors with a lukewarm feeling about their outlook for the year going forward. The clearest market move last week? Commodities continue to rally as as inflation-fueled price increases continue. Almost all commodities, from agriculture and lumber to metals and energy, are at or near 52-week highs, with prices up double digits, and in the case of petroleum products, iron, copper, corn, and lumber, up triple digits. These moves in input prices have already translated to higher prices on consumer goods, with companies reporting more planned price increases in 2021 as they report earnings this quarter. Companies have to raise prices when faced with higher input costs in order to preserve profit margins and earnings. This is inflation. Some of those companies who've already reported they plan to or already have raised prices, P&G, Kimberly-Clark, Coca-Cola, J.M. Smucker, PepsiCo, Nestle, and General Mills, just to name a few. 
These are impacting prices on everything from diapers to beverages, cereal to toilet paper. So be sure to adjust your grocery budgets accordingly. This brings me to the March housing market data that came out last week. Ahead of last week's housing data release, I gave a detailed update on the housing market and the forces driving the current demand and price increases in the market during last week's deep dive. The data released last week, both for the existing housing sales reported by the National Association of Realtors, as well as by the Census Bureau on housing starts and new home sales, confirmed much of what we were expecting. Lower inventories faced with high demand driving further price increases. For existing homes, inventory, or the number of homes listed for sale, was down 28% versus last March, representing just two months of supply. For comparison, a normal market typically sees four to six months of listing inventory. It is this extremely limited supply that is driving price increases. In terms of sales, actual units sold were down 4% versus February, likely due to the residual impact of February's winter storms, because closings come at a bit of a lag, with prices up over 17% versus a year ago. Median home prices for homes sold are up double digits in every single region of the country, with the West and the Northeast up even more than the national median. On the new housing front, we saw similar trends, but we're also seeing a big increase in new construction as well. New housing starts increased 19% versus February and are up 37% versus a year ago, up to 1.7 million starts on a seasonally adjusted basis. This is the highest level of new home starts since, the, since late 2006, with the last six months being the first time since the Great Recession that we've seen housing starts consistently at or above median levels in well over a decade. So at least on the new construction front, housing starts are picking up to meet some of that need with increased demand, but it's going to take time and continued, continued levels of elevated construction to have an impact on prices. We're playing catch up with demand here. In March, over 1 million new homes were sold on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis, up nearly 70% from a year ago. As homes for sale are less than a year ago, driving up the median price on new homes sold to over $330,000. To better see all this data in visual form, be sure to check out the link for the Market Weekly Update in the show notes. Now that bonus headline for this week. Given the market insanity around cryptocurrency, let me give a little update on Bitcoin since it was down big last week. Concerns over inflation and the rapid growth in the money supply have fueled the rise in more speculative investments like commodities and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin over the last year. Two Saturdays, two Saturdays ago, and yes, cryptocurrency trades 24-7, there was a flash crash in Bitcoin and it spurred a continued sell-off all through last week. Bitcoin ended the week down 18%, down nearly 20% from its prior week high. Now there's lots of speculation as to why Bitcoin is selling off. Here's just a few of them. First, plans by countries around the world for increased regulation and or complete banning of cryptocurrencies entirely. 
Increased regulation is anticipated by the U.S. Treasury Department, though the timing of it is still unclear. This was the rumored trigger of the initial sell-off. Another source? More competition. Many countries are also launching or evaluating the launch of their own digital currencies, including China, England, and the U.S. Last week, many investors were bidding up Dogecoin, too. And last week's IPO of Coinbase, a dedicated cryptocurrency exchange, makes all cryptocurrencies more accessible to investors. Could it just be some diversification among crypto investors? Maybe. And lastly, Biden's capital gains tax hike, the same thing impacting the stock market. All those Bitcoin millionaires may be locking in gains now ahead of a potential tax hike. No matter the reason, the sell-off highlights two key issues for cryptocurrencies in general. One, increased volatility. You don't get triple-digit annual price increases in any investment without some double-digit swings along the way, so you have to expect that. And two, no underlying fundamental basis for its valuation. The value of Bitcoin is solely based on whatever its holders and potential buyers believe it's worth. There are some shaky hands out there and any signs of weakness or sell-off are likely to send those investors to the exits, especially with nothing to pin the value on. And now for this week's deep dive, let's talk about capital gains taxes. What are they? What is President Biden actually proposing and why? And why are capital gains tax rates so low to begin with? The major political news that moved the stock market last week surrounds a leaked proposal coming from the Biden administration to double the capital gains tax rate on the wealthiest Americans. I say leaked because this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. It was front and center as part of his campaign platform, and I even talked about it when I outlined the potential economic impacts of the election back in October. Biden campaigned on returning the top tax bracket's marginal tax rate to 39.6% for those married filing jointly and earning over $400,000, and taxing capital gains as ordinary income for those earning over a million dollars at that same 39.6% rate. However, this issue is now front and center again this week on Wednesday when President Biden presents his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan proposal to a joint session of Congress. Now, mind you, Congress still hasn't passed the legislation and is still debating his $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan. While the Jobs Plan is intended to be funded by a hike in corporate taxes, The family's plan intends to raise personal income taxes on the wealthiest Americans, including doubling the capital gains tax rate for those earning more than a million dollars annually to pay for it. I'll give a full breakdown of the American family's plan next week once the White House actually releases the full details and we have more than just speculation and hearsay to go on, but it is focused on initiatives like childcare, universal preschool, paid family leave, and free community college. Ahead of that release, however, I wanted to provide some data points on capital gains taxes and why increasing them is generally viewed as bad policy. 
First, let's talk about what capital gain taxes actually are. Capital gains represent the price appreciation of an investment. In the U.S., you only pay taxes on capital gains once the gains are realized, meaning once you actually sell your investment. Also in the U.S., capital gains are taxed differently depending on how long you hold the investment. In order to incentivize long-term investment, which is better for companies, the economy, and reduces overall market volatility, capital gains taxes on investments held for more than a year have historically been taxed at a lower tax rate than ordinary income. Currently, long-term capital gains are taxed at 0% for married joint filers earning up to $80,000, 15% for those up to just under $500,000, and 20% for married joint filers earning over $500,000. It is this long-term capital gains tax rate that President Biden is proposing to increase to ordinary income marginal rates, or 39.6%, as one of the tax increases to generate funding for the American Families Plan. As an aside, short-term capital gains, or gains on investments held for less than a year, are taxed as ordinary income for everyone. Now, why are people concerned about this increase? Primarily because higher capital gains taxes have demonstrated historically to reduce investment. First, from a government revenue perspective, capital gains taxes are the most volatile and least reliable of all tax revenue sources. They ebb and flow with the economic environment, overall stock market performance, and are highly controlled by investor behavior. This makes them far less consistent and more erratic than income taxes. While income growth may slow or decline by single digits in a recession, the stock market, as we saw last year, can decline by double digits when faced with a recession. And when the market tanks, capital gains taxes dry up at the very time the government needs revenue most. This also makes any forecasting for what they may produce in terms of tax revenue going forward highly speculative and contingent on future market performance. Capital gains realized and the taxes associated with them are strongly and positively correlated with the overall performance of the stock market. We also need to note the impact of human behavior here. If we look back at historical increases in the capital gains tax rate, in both 1985 and 2012, just before increases took place, realized gains spiked ahead of the rate increase. Why? To realize the gains ahead of the tax increase and get more favorable tax treatment. They are then followed by a dearth of realized gains after, resulting in far less tax revenue than would have been projected by a rate increase. Investors choose and control when they want to realize capital gains and pay taxes. You can bet the more likely it looks like this rate increase will happen, the more investors will choose to realize gains this year ahead of a doubling tax rate. And after, they will limit realizing as many gains as possible. This also means they will be less likely to sell existing investments going forward to free up additional capital to invest in new opportunities. On the flip side, if we look at what happens when the maximum tax rate on capital gains is reduced in 1981, 1997, and 2003, 
Subsequent market performance, as well as the resulting realized capital gains and tax revenues generated, increased significantly. So the government actually generated higher tax revenues from capital gains with lower capital gains tax rates. Investors care about the after-tax value of their investment returns, the money they actually get back in their pocket from an investment. All investors require a specific level of after-tax returns for the risks they are taking. If you double capital gains taxes, you cut the after-tax returns to investors by 25%, which means one of two things, both of which produce the same end result. One, investors will be willing to take fewer risks when investing, or two, they will demand a higher pre-tax return to end up with the same after-tax results, leading to less investment overall. Fewer opportunities will meet their return objectives. This means less venture capital investing, less startup funding, less investment in innovation, less entrepreneurship, all of which are what drive future economic growth and jobs. It also makes the U.S. a less attractive place to invest relative to the rest of the world. There are in fact many OECD countries, countries in the developed world, that have a capital gains tax of zero because they know taxing capital gains impedes investment and hinders future economic growth. The OECD weighted average top marginal tax rate on capital gains as of 2015 was just over 23%, pretty close to where the U.S. is today. Our top marginal capital gains tax rate is 20% for those filing jointly, making just under $500,000. It was reduced to 20% from 25% under the 2018 Trump tax cuts. There is an an additional net investment tax of 3.8%, which was added back in 2013 to support the funding of the Affordable Care Act, making a top federal marginal tax rate on capital gains of 23.8%. President Biden proposes setting the top capital gains tax rate to be the same as ordinary income tax rates for those earning over a million dollars per year, or 39.6%. With the additional funding for the Affordable Care Act, that would make it 43.4%, putting it the highest marginal tax rate on capital gains in the entire developed economic world, and nearly twice the OECD average. Note also that many states with state income taxes add additional taxes to those federal capital gains rates as well, which is why you are hearing some people talk about how this increase would result in capital gains tax rates of well over 50% in places like California and New York. Remember that capital is fully mobile. Investors, both U.S.-based as well as international, will put their money wherever after-tax returns are most attractive. And with a doubled capital gains tax rate, the U.S. becomes a less attractive place to invest. It also makes certain places even within the U.S. less attractive for investors and high net worth individuals, given the additional impact of state taxes. Now, this is allegedly only going to apply to those who make over a million dollars a year. So you may think, this is never going to apply to me. But here's the thing. The wealthy are who invest. 
you're impacting the behavior of the significant majority of investors, albeit less than 1% of all taxpayers. Those who make over a million dollars a year fall somewhere between the top 0.1% and 1% of all tax filers in the U.S. The majority of their income, unlike the bottom 99%, is disproportionately driven by capital gains. The top 1% represent two-thirds of all capital gains income in the U.S., while the remaining 99% represent just one-third. So you are talking about impacting the majority of investors in the United States, even if it impacts less than 1% of all taxpayers. So why are capital gains taxed at a lesser rate than ordinary income? It's not just this way in the U.S. Nearly all developed economies provide favorable tax treatment for investment, so there has to be a reason for it. First, many view taxing investment income at all as double taxation. You earn ordinary income, you pay taxes on it, and then invest it, only to be taxed on it again when you realize gains. Or conversely, a company earns income, pays taxes on it, and distributes part of that earnings to shareholders as dividends, and shareholders get taxed on the investment income. From whichever side you look at it, it is money being taxed twice. Second, As we've seen over this last year more clearly than ever before, the actions of our own government, both by the central bank lowering interest rates and printing more money in a single year than in the entire last decade combined, as well as the significant increase in government spending, is driving higher inflation. This is also part of what is fueling investment returns, as investors try to offset the loss of their dollar's purchasing power through investment. The capital gains we realize are not real returns. They are inflated by inflation. A lower tax rate is viewed as an adjustment for the impact of inflation. Also, as I outlined above, capital can easily be invested anywhere around the world. Keeping capital gains rates low makes investing in the U.S. more attractive relative to the rest of the world. Increasing capital gains rates makes it increasingly likely that we will see investment outflows as investors liquidate U.S. investments in favor of more tax-favorable international markets. And finally, investment is the growth engine of our future economy. When investors realize gains, they typically redeploy them into new businesses, new technology, or new entrepreneurial endeavors. Studies show that higher capital gains rates reduce funding for startups as well as entrepreneurship. Remember, the vast majority of investors fall into that $1 million a year income bucket, which means the vast majority of funding for startups and entrepreneurs comes from that bucket too. And President Biden is proposing to double the tax rate they pay, reducing the funds they would have to reinvest as well as reducing the risks they are willing to take given the prospect of lower after-tax returns. I'm going to leave you with a quote from former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, who led the Fed for nearly 20 years from 1987 to 2006, serving under four different presidents. If the capital gains tax were eliminated, that we would presumably over time see increased economic growth, which would raise revenues for personal and corporate taxes, as well as the other taxes we have. 
The crucial issues about the capital gains tax is not its revenue-raising capacity. I think it's a very poor tax for that purpose. Indeed, its major impact is to impede entrepreneurial activity and capital formation. While all taxes impede economic growth to one extent or another, the capital gains tax is at the far end of the scale. I argue that the appropriate capital gains tax rate was zero. And in fact, as of 2021, many European countries have no taxes on capital gains at all, including Belgium, the Czech Republic, Luxembourg, Slovakia, Slovenia, Switzerland, and Turkey. Where would you want to invest? That's it for this week's deep dive. We've got another big week for economic data, as well as the peak of earnings season coming up this week. Over 900 companies are scheduled to report. On the economic front, Wednesday, the Fed will host a press conference following its regularly scheduled FOMC meeting. Investors will be closely watching their statement and follow-up press conference for any indication of when an interest rate hike is coming and whether it's sooner than they said last time. On Thursday, in addition to the usual weekly jobless claims and mortgage rates data, we'll also be getting the first estimate for Q1 GDP. And Friday, look for the disposable income numbers for March, along with personal consumption expenditures, both of which are expected to be elevated from the stimulus checks that went out last month. But what did that do to the PCE price index, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation? Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom as I share and chat about all these measures with you as they are released. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.